This is Suzanne Cosgrove reporting for John Lothian News. Today we're looking at cannabis market fundamentals and equity performance with NASDAQ's Salim Daya. Salim is part of the Toronto-based research team that covers listed cannabis companies, many of which trade on NASDAQ. Welcome. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks so much for having me again. It's really great to be back. Good to have you. So let's get going. This cannabis sector performed exceptionally well in fourth quarter 2020 and first quarter 2021, outperforming the S&P 500 in some period. Investor interest was high. For example, according to your research, the advisor shared pure U.S. cannabis ETF saw inflows of $820 million in the quarter ended in March. But sector prices have pulled back since. So I wondered, what is behind that shift? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really great question, Suzanne. So for a bit of a recap, um, cannabis names uh, essentially reversed course in the second quarter of 2021 as the selective benchmark receded by around 11%. This naturally was a far cry from the solid over 30% uh, performance that we saw across the cannabis space in the first quarter of 2021. Now, in the second quarter, Canadian players really served as a drag across the sector, pulling back by around 84% on average. And even multi-state operators actually ended the quarter lower to the tune of around 7%. Now, there were a variety of reasons for this underperformance. Um, First, the regulatory momentum and accompanying optimism that we saw in November of 2020 and in January of 2021 effectively fizzled out. Um, We still haven't really seen any substantial movement on the federal um, cannabis legislation fronts, of course, with the exception being uh, a very recent development that I'm sure we'll get to discuss later on. Um, Second was the spillover effect from the Archegos fiasco. Now, for some of your listeners that may not be aware, Archegos, Uh, which is a very large hedge fund, had essentially taken out tens of billions of dollars of exposure to stocks through synthetic derivatives. Now, the underwriters of these derivatives, typically the big banks, Credit Suisse in particular, were very hard hit as Archegos' holdings essentially cratered in March, forcing the firm to unwind its, uh, its various positions. Now, as a result, those big banks lost a lot of money and in subsequent months began telling clients they would no longer provide uh, custodial services for cannabis names. And Credit Suisse was really kind of the main player here that did this. And it, it, this actually hit the sector really hard. On the back of this development, there was also some notable news that uh, some pretty well-established investors in the space had either sold down or exited uh, their cannabis investments. Waysatch Global Investors was one such name. Uh, in addition to these factors, there were also concerns about rising yields, which adversely impact growth companies like those in the cannabis sector. And there was also a resurgence in popularity in so-called meme stocks, which served to adversely impact the space. And the thesis here is that retail investors, which are very significant holders across cannabis names would have sought to capitalize on some of the idiosyncratic volatility in early June and essentially would have sold down their their cannabis exposure in favor of gaining exposure to those those, those so-called meme stocks. I, I see. I see. Can you talk about institutional interest in the cannabis sector? Are institutions more involved or less involved in the sector since the last time we spoke? And any big players that you've noticed? 
Yeah, for sure. So I think against this backdrop of uh, a relatively depressed sector performance, looking at quarterly performance, um, I think we can also take a look at a recent 13F quarterly disclosure. Um, looking at that, and despite that relatively depressed price performance, we definitely continue to see uh, an increasing institutional footprint. Looking at the top buyers across a lot of the cannabis companies, uh, we definitely have seen some notable purchases, including those from Telestra, who initiated a very sizable position in Green Thumb Industries back in Q1, um, Marshall Waste, uh, as well as Pentwater. We also saw um, massive, you know, LA-based Capital World initiate a position in Kronos Group, which is a Canadian licensed pr uh, producer, according to their 13F disclosure. And this, in my view, is, is, is a very important milestone as they are a titan from an asset management perspective. And historically, they haven't really held positions uh, across cannabis companies per se prior to Q121, rather their exposure has really been focused on companies that more or less touch the cannabis sector. So an investment in a large Canadian licensed producer like Kronos uh, is quite noteworthy and really underscores the evolving buy side perspective across the space. Um, I think what's really interesting here is that position, just looking at some of Capital's more, more recent disclosure, looks like it's, uh, it's, it's held steady. And that's despite the weakness that we actually saw in the cannabis space over Q2 uh, 21. So it's it's becoming really apparent uh, and quite obvious that buy side perspectives uh, on the cannabis space really continue to evolve. It's really interesting. In aggregate also, short positions in the cannabis sector have been fairly low, but then that that was late last year. But now they're, they were up nearly 24% across the sector in the first quarter. And then in your June report, it showed shorts up 18% across the Horizons Marijuana Life Sciences Index ETF. What's your current view of short interest? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely a very uh, a very good point. I mean, we, we, we've talked a bit uh, kind of like uh, about kind of long-term perspectives and, and buy-side perspectives. So naturally, the short side is, is obviously um, kind of a good area to focus on and, and a really good transition. Uh, I think despite the pressure we've seen across the sector, overall shorting activity remains relatively subdued, particularly when we're looking at historical levels. Shorting across U.S. players remains quite muted, and even among those Canadian licensed producers, the average short interest as a percentage of shares outstanding ratio sits at just over 10%, which isn't that high in historical terms at least. Some of the recent increases that we've seen across um, marijuana benchmarks, including the Horizons Marijuana Life Sciences Index ETF, have really come uh, during a time where bearish bets have essentially hovered close to historic lows, right? So mm -hmm. I think when we, when we take a step back and we consider what historically high levels have looked like, shorting actually isn't really that significant across the cannabis space. Um, it is going to be higher, of course, when compared to other sectors. But 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 I think uh, again, in historical terms, it's it's not going to be um, as uh, as high as it was in say 2020. And here, I think the appetite to short stocks has been substantially reduced, particularly as we've seen a huge spike in retail participation in the broader markets. And many of these players um, have targeted highly shorted names, as some of your listeners may know. Um, this targeting has actually prompted huge losses across 
big investment managers that 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 essentially uh, engage in bearish bets across select names. And some of those managers that have taken on huge losses include Melvin Capital, Light Street Capital, and London-based White Square, a White Square Capital, and even. Um, from what we've been seeing across the investment manager landscape, even among names that um, are willing to uh, to short stocks, there's um, a much more reduced appetite uh, to take out larger sh- short positions. So even if shorting is, is going to continue, um, the, the names that typically do engage in a lot of shorting, we're seeing some select evidence to indicate that they're tearing back those bearish bets. One of the reoccurring questions we discussed in our previous podcast has been asset flows into the cannabis sector, especially their benchmarks. Uh, what did that look like in second quarter of 2021? Yeah. So as you know, when we, when we last spoke, um, asset flows into major cannabis, uh, cannabis benchmarks remained very substantial. And in the case of the first quarter of 2021 would have hovered around their highest levels on record, particularly if we're looking at daily flows. Now, the story has taken a drastic change uh, in the second quarter of 2021. Um, the Horizons North American Life Sciences Index ETF, the ETF MG Alternative Harvest Index ETF, uh, MSOs, and even advisor shares, all of which are major well-known cannabis-focused funds, all notched uh, outflows over the quarterly period. Now, this is especially noteworthy when we're looking at MSOs, which, as your listeners may recall, is the benchmark for U.S.-based exposure. Back in the first quarter of 2021, that particular benchmark saw around uh, $820 million worth of inflows, right? And at the time, that uh, that outpaced the MJ by a factor of three. Now, shift to the second quarter of 2021, and the MSOs actually witnessed outflows of close to 20 million. So we went essentially from inflows of 820 million in Q1 2021 to outflows of 20 million in Q2 22, which is a massive departure. Uh, and um, which, which uh, looking at the MSO's very recent history, it was launched close to the end of 2020, uh, marks its, I believe, its largest monthly outflows, right? Since its inception, so a lot of uh, a lot of the drivers for this depressed activity across the space will center around the reasons I, I cited earlier for the broader pullback that we've seen um, across uh, across cannabis names. Going back to the June report, the research showed production of packaged edibles and extracts by licensed producers ramping up through the end of the third quarter in 2020, and then declining slightly ever since, basically because supply has outpaced demand and left an excess of inventory, which is interesting. Oversupply is also an issue, a big issue in the U.S. hemp market. So going back to the packaged edibles and extracts, where do you see that situation going from here? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a really good question. And, and thematically, uh, the supply demand mismatch that appears to characterize the Canadian market um, has been a longstanding issue for a lot of those Canadian producers. Um, regulatory barriers concerning marketing and the licensing of retail lo- locations have historically played a really key role in prolonging that supply demand mismatch. Uh, the issue of retail locations is one um, that is being addressed, particularly given Ontario's pledge in, in late 2020 to significantly ramp up its issuance of retail licenses after mm-hmm. um, over, overhauling its, its issuance model. 
Um, now, of course, substantial limitations um, remain on, uh, on on marketing, and and, and that I think um, will persist as a fairly significant barrier uh, when it comes to to remedying that that supply demand mismatch. Now, a possible opportunity, I think, in addressing the oversupply, particularly. Uh, looking at the Canadian context, lies in the ability for Canadian players, of course, to export their product or to access other markets, particularly the U.S. And this is one of the many reasons I, I think the, the major LPs have been especially uh, focused on the U.S. market, particularly if we consider that in the U.S. Um, that supply-demand mismatch equation is inverted, namely U.S. in, in the U.S. generally, uh, demand tends to tends to outplay uh, outpace uh, supply, right? So, with with this in mind, um, we essentially return to, to the fundamental question of U.S. regulation and what that will look like, and the extent to which Canadian LPs will be able to access uh, the U.S. market when uh, the matter of regulation is uh, is eventually solved. How have ongoing initiatives towards cannabis legalization in the U.S. been a factor? In market performance, does that factor in here? I think, despite the continued progress in moving the needle at the state level, investors remain heavily focused on the shape and scope of U.S. federal regulation, which is where we've seen regulatory momentum stall. Right, the matter of regulation more broadly has also been a point of concern, given the actions that we that we kind of highlighted earlier, particularly surrounding Credit Suisse in May of this year. Um, and if we look at how markets have performed them in some recent regulatory headlines, I think the dominant theme here is fatigue rather than pessimism. And we've definitely seen this, this theme play out in response to some recent um, re- regulatory developments, namely the, the Cannabis Administration and, and, and Opportunity Act. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, we're kind of leading up to that. Um, so that act, the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, was introduced in the U.S. Senate by Democrats, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So if enacted, the bill would decriminalize cannabis on a U.S. federal level and also preserve at least parts of existing state cannabis laws and regulations. And I was wondering if that proposal is supportive to the market sector or not. Yeah, so I I think looking at the market reaction, at least since, the short answer is not really. In the days that followed the draft bill's release, there was a precipitous fall across uh, cannabis names. And this wasn't just relegated to, to um, let's say, U.S. MSOs, multi-state operators, but it was widespread. Um, there were universal declines across the cannabis space. And I think the market viewed the draft bill as overly ambitious and thus mm-hmm. unlikely to win the required bipartisan approval it would need to pass both the House and the Senate. The bill's text is around 163 pages and includes provisions such as expunging prior convictions related to cannabis, imposing a federal tax on marijuana products with a proportion of the revenue earmarked toward grant programs to support disenfranchised communities, and transferring regulatory authority over cannabis from the Drug Enforcement Agency to uh, the FDA, right? So it's, it's quite broad. There's also the critical point that President Biden himself continues to oppose adult use legalization and reiterated as such shortly after the release of Schumer's draft bill. So from a market perspective, I think the view here is that there remains a lot of division within the Democratic Party 
um, alongside standard partisan opposition. So that proposal wasn't quite as supportive of the sector as one would have expected. So that that's at a federal level, but then we we are also talking about the U.S. state level. That's something you alluded to earlier. What about there? What about there at the state level? Yeah. So at the state level, there's definitely been a lot of development and progress on on legalization um, and or decriminalization, and that's actually where most of the regulatory action uh, tends to occur. Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Louisiana, for example, all have outstanding cannabis legalization or decriminalization bills currently being tabled. Tennessee, for instance, introduced Bill TNHB 0413, which is a bill aimed at decriminalizing the possession and casual exchange of less than one ounce of marijuana. Uh, That bill is currently in committee. South Carolina is a similar case um, with, uh, with another bill currently in committee as well. And outside of legalization and decriminalization, there are efforts to deregulate hemp and cannabis-related derivatives um, at the state level. So really, it's the states that continue to move the dial here, and it's the states that have been the driving force behind federal deregulation. What about in Canada? We've talked a lot about the U.S., but what about in Canada? For example, hemp is legal but very restricted in Canada. Are there any changes Mm -hmm. in the works there? Yeah, so, so just a quick recap for your, for your listeners. CBD is a controlled substance in Canada and as well as other jurisdictions. Um, and as a result, CBD and products containing CBD are subject to all of the rules and requirements that ultimately apply to cannabis under the Cannabis Act. Uh, this includes CBD derived from industrial hemp plants as well as CBD derived from other varieties of cannabis. Now, I have not seen any substantial changes in, in, health, in health regulation um, Canada at the at the moment, though there have been some really important developments actually in the United States, um, and these again have really been occurring at the uh, at the state level. But one interesting action, for example, that just occurred last week, U.S. lawmakers uh, voiced their disagreement with the 2018 Farm Bill's 0.3% THC cap for lawful hemp products, and uh, actually directed the USDA to work with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as well as a DEA on a study of whether or not that particular threshold um, is scientifically backed. So I actually think if we're, if we're talking about hemp, there's a lot more, there's a lot more action actually occurring uh, in the U S on the back of those um, kind of state level driven initiatives. Interesting. Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered? One timely development that, that we really continue to, to monitor is the, the, the progress and movement of the, the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act um, and kind of the process that that continues, um, uh, that, that will actually take um, as, it, as it moves to, to kind of the, the, the legislative um, process. I think we also continue to, to kind of keep a close, close eye on the Safe Banking Act, which, of course, um, as you may recall, um, is essentially a uh, draft legislation that, if memory serves, has gone through um, committee uh, and would, if passed, um, possibly permit the uplifting of U.S. US-based players. It would also provide um, um, banking and financial services to uh, to many of the U.S.-based multi-state operators that don't have access to such services. So that's definitely one important, um, very important, actually, regulatory framework that we continue to, uh, to keep an eye on. Um, I think um, looking ahead, um, the perspective on cannabis regulation is that it's likely going to come a bit further out, 2022, perhaps. 
Um, but I think overall, the sector continues to encounter a lot of uh, disruption on the regulatory front. In, in particular, there's a lot of state-driven initiatives um, to push uh, legalization efforts. And I think um, if states can maintain that, that momentum, then that's really going to trickle down um, to, to, to the federal level. Trickle down or trickle up, as the case may be. Yeah. Great talking with you, Salim. I'm, I'm so Thanks glad. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. So this is Suzanne Cosgrove for John Lothian News.